0: Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature easy, like being spoon-fed the latest research straight through your earbuds. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering from this past week. First off, we had exercising after a mild TBI. After that, we had eye drops for pain control when you scratch your cornea. Then, should you be wary about that tiny bit of potassium in Ringer's lactate? And then after that, saving on pictures for nursemaid's elbow. And finally, the safety of ignoring some blood pressure readings. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the benevolent Clay Smith. Now then, the first article from this week was titled A Randomized Trial Comparing Prescribed Light Exercise to Standard Management for Emergency Department Patients with Acute Mild Traumatic Brain Injuries out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Concussions used to be something we just waved off. No big deal, Jimmy, get back into the game. Now, oh no, that's not the case. We went way in the other direction after that, teaching that complete rest is the best after a concussion. Now, eh, we're about in the middle. Evidence shows that children seem to show better recovery with a little bit of light aerobic exercise. That's right, they get better quicker. So what about in adults? We tend to bounce back a little bit slower than most kids do. Now, this study was done in three Canadian emergency departments, where they had 370 patients with mild TBIs, Who were randomized to get discharge instructions of either 30 minutes of light aerobic exercise i.e walking every day or just the usual instructions to gradually increase their activity using a post-concussion symptom questionnaire at 30 days after the discharge there was no difference between the two groups on top of that they missed the same number of days of work or school and had no difference in the number of return visits either so well, this intervention doesn't seem like it hurts any patients, it doesn't seem like it helps them either. That's not surprising though, since there was actually a whole bunch of factors in this study that might have pushed the trial sort of towards null results. How many people actually took the discharge instructions advice to heart? The instructions were given orally and provided in writing, but we already know that if patients are going to retain even half of the discharge instructions that you give them, then you're lucky. So how many understood what to do, and then how many of them actually did that after understanding? It's hard to tell. No harm seemed to come to them after giving them these instructions, though. So that's a good sign. In a spoonful, a bit of light exercise after a mild TBI in adults neither increased nor decreased symptoms at 30 days. Following that, we have the second article, which was titled Topical Pain Control for Corneal Abrations, a systematic review and meta-analysis out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Now, not long ago, we actually covered two pretty solid studies that showed the effects of tetracaine for corneal abrasions. Both of them showed a pretty good effect in pain control. And anyone that's ever had a tono pen used on them, you know that little pen with a condom on it that's used to Measure the pressure inside your eye? Well, I can tell you that I've had one used on me and I've used them on patients as well. And that's after a few drops of tetracaine, and that numbs your eye right up. They don't feel a thing. So I thought the pending question here was really more going to be about safety of corneal anesthetics. But apparently not to these authors. So we'll see what they have to say anyways. So this study was actually a systematic review and meta-analysis of 31 RCTs and two observational studies, which encompassed more than 4,000 patients, where they looked at different types of topical agents and patching for corneal abrasions. The authors felt that there was only enough combined data to draw meaningful conclusions about topical NSAIDs, which appeared to reduce pain at 24 and 48 hours, along with them having to take less other pain control medications. So again, the author stated that there was not enough evidence for them to show reductions in pain from other interventions like topical anesthetics, cycloplegics, pressure patching, or bandage contact lenses. None of these treatments appeared to show any impairment in healing, except for maybe pressure patching, but you're probably not going to do that anyways. So I'm surprised actually that there wasn't enough data to show an effect for topical anesthetics, given that there are several studies showing that they work. But apparently a lot of them were not able to be included in this meta-analysis. But that hasn't quite shaken the conviction of our author, Clay, who's still convinced that they work. And honestly, I'm going to have to side with him. A few drops of that stuff and you can do laser eye surgery on someone's eyes. I should know. I think it should be able to handle an abrasion or at least improve the pain. The real question pending in my mind is safety but this study wasn't able to comment on that and most of the previous studies weren't powered enough to detect complications. So when the data's not clear and the risks seem low and it could markedly increase the patient comfort, then this is a really good time to have shared decision-making with trustworthy patients. In a spoonful, topical NSAIDs improve pain control for corneal abrasions, but apparently the jury's still out on everything else. Now then, we have the third article, which was titled Balanced Crystalloids versus Saline in Critically Ill Adults with Hyperkalemia or Acute Kidney Injury, a Secondary Analysis of a Clinical Trial out of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So, Ringer's lactate has been really coming into favor in recent years, certainly since we discovered that normal saline really isn't as normal as it claims. Normal saline has a lower pH, it has higher chloride, and could potentially cause hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Ringer's lactate, on the other hand, contains a little bit of potassium. So what if the patient is already hyperkalemic or has an acute kidney injury? Does that little bit of extra potassium make a difference? And could it make those conditions even worse? This study was a secondary analysis of the SMART trial, that included 187 patients with hyperkalemia defined as more than 6.5 millimoles per liter, and 1300 patients with acute kidney injuries on admission to the ICU. Half of the patients received normal saline, and the other half received ringer's lactate. Between the two groups, there was no statistical difference in developing severe hyperkalemia among patients with initial hyperkalemia, and actually the normal saline group eh, fared slightly worse, but not significantly so. Now, just like in the general conclusions from the SMART trial, fewer patients needed renal replacement, had a new AKI or worsening AKIs in the balanced fluid group. If they were admitted with an AKI to the ICU, there was no difference in progression to hyperkalemia between the two groups. Overall, if neither fluid is going to have a difference on potassium levels, then Ringer's lactate has already been shown to have some advantages from the SMART trial. Maybe we should be using that. In a spoonful, the use of balanced fluids, like Ringer's lactate, did not increase the risk of severe hyperkalemia compared with normal saline, even if the potassium was already over 6.5. Moving on, we have the fourth article, which was titled, Management and Outcomes of Children with Nursemaid's Elbow at the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, close your eyes and imagine that the triage note says there's a hurt extremity. Your finely honed reflexes are probably already twitching towards the radiology requisition to get an x-ray. I've seen loads of patients sent for x-rays before even being seen by a doctor. But of course, not all injuries are going to need an x-ray. Some joints have those handy decision rules, which you can use to decide whether you need an x-ray or not. But not every joint has that. The nursemaid's elbow is actually a common injury that's found in a lot of young children how often are x-rays really going to make a difference in those patients. This was a retrospective review of 45 pediatric emergency departments spanning over nine years to include almost 90,000 patients diagnosed with nursemaid's elbow. The mean age was 2.1 years old, 60% of them were female and 60% of the arms were left arms. A total of 28% of initial visits had x-rays of the arm done. However, only 0.3% of the entire cohort had missed fractures. That's 1% of the subset of patients that were x-rayed. Here, a missed fracture was defined as a fracture detected within one week of the original visit. So together, this probably tells us that we could be ordering less x-rays for nursemaids' elbows. Factors to watch out for though, which were associated with missed fractures, were children over the age of six, getting an x-ray on the initial visit, and receiving ibuprofen or acetaminophen during the visit. So the answer obviously isn't that no x-rays are appropriate, but perhaps we can be a little bit stricter. Most nursemaids' elbows in this study were in children 1 to 3 years old, so watch out for older kids. As for the mechanism of action, of course, have a higher suspicion for a higher energy mechanism. Expect these children to have the classic positioning as well their arm tucked against their body with their palm facing down. You can soothe that child with whatever your favorite method is, it's probably gonna be baby shark, let's be honest, and then check them for point tenderness. If that's not painful, then try to slightly supinate the wrist. This usually hurts a nursemaid's elbow. So your classic patient with a nursemaid's elbow is going to look like a toddler with no point tenderness, no bruising and no swelling. It's going to be from a low mechanism of action, and they're going to be holding their arm pronated and abducted. These children probably don't need an x-ray. To reduce the elbow, we're recommending a hyperpronation technique, though of course you should do whatever you're most comfortable with. In a spoonful, missed fractures in patients with nursemaid's elbows are rare. Save the radiation and the time by skipping the x-ray without compromising safety. And now the last article, one that I quite liked. Titled, Elevated Blood Pressures Are Common in the Emergency Department, But Are They Important? A retrospective cohort study of 30,278 adults out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. The diagnosis of hypertension has gradually moved farther and farther away from the doctor's office. The mere presence of a doctor seems to be enough to not get a reliable reading. And what probably matters more anyways is your blood pressure in your day-to-day life. If you're coming into the emergency department, it's probably a stressful time. More stressful than going to see your primary care physician, odds are. So it's not surprising that many blood pressure readings are high when patients come in. The question is, should we care? This was a retrospective look at patients from a single center with elevated blood pressure readings in the emergency department who were followed up for cardiovascular outcomes looking for strokes, TIAs, ACS, new heart failure, or death in the following two years. Half of the 30,000 patients included in this study had elevated blood pressure readings in the emergency department. After controlling for confounders, they found no increased risk for these patients with high BPs. Even if your pressure was more than 160 systolic over 100 diastolic, this still didn't increase your chance of the composite outcomes. 25% of the patients who had pressures over 160 over 100 were subsequently diagnosed with hypertension over the next two years though. So it doesn't mean nothing, but it's also not going to predict dangerous outcomes. In a spoonful, almost half of adults had elevated blood pressure readings when taken in the ER. But even if your pressure was over 160 over 100, this still didn't correlate with adverse cardiovascular outcomes within two years. So now then that's it. That's all that's all we're going to cover from this week. Let's do a quick review of everything we learned so that it really sticks in your head. First off, while it seems to help in children, a bit of walking post-concussion didn't appear to help or hurt symptoms at 30 days in adults. Second, can't comment on much, but at least we can comment on that topical NSAIDs do appear to decrease pain in corneal abrasions. After that, even with a pinch of potassium included in balanced fluids, they still don't seem to worsen hyperkalemia and may even be the better fluid than normal saline. Fourth, if you've got a young toddler coming in after a low-energy injury to their arm, which has no bruising, no point tenderness, and no swelling, and they're holding it abducted and pronated, that sure sounds like a nursemaid's elbow to me. You can probably skip the x-ray. And then fifth, yes, your pressure's high. No, it doesn't matter. And now then, that's it. That's all. And you've earned them, we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. The details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. And also on our website are links to all the articles summarized. And if you haven't already, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.